Hi, I'm Phil Albertelli, and this is The Week in Doubt, a podcast for atheists, agnostics, and whoever. And this is episode, uh, let's call it 186. I'm not going to bother numbering the last few special episodes I recently published. So a couple of quick corrections before we get started. I recently did a completely unscripted, off-the-cuff episode about an atheist uh, Bangladeshi law student who was hacked to death. I think at the top of the episode, I referred to him as a lawyer, uh, but technically, as I had just stated, he was still a student. And then I acted surprised that there was a secular movement or movements in Bangladesh. And I have to admit, I was somewhat naive on the subject. My good friend, the mad humanist, who has covered similar stories in the past, politely informed me that Bangladesh has a secular government, modeled after the or a parliamentary system, I believe. But here's a little bit from Wikipedia on secularism in Bangladeshi government. Secularism is one of the four fundamental principles according to the original 1972 Constitution of Bangladesh. The secularism principle was removed from the Constitution in 1977 by Zawar Rahman, probably butchering that, replaced by a statement of quote-unquote absolute trust and faith in Almighty Allah. And Islam was declared the state religion in 1988. In 2010, the Bangladesh Supreme Court restored secularism as one of the basic tenets of the Constitution, but Islam remained the state religion. Over 90% of Bangladeshis are Muslims, the rest being Hindus, Buddhists, Christians, and others. People in Bangladesh observe various secular festivals at different times throughout the year. The ethos of secularism in South Asia is in many ways different from that of Western versions that assert complete separation of church and state. Rather, it is the freedom of individuals to practice the faith he or she desires without being subject to any form of state or communal discrimination. And I think the current prime minister is the leader of the Awami League party, uh, a party which promotes secularism. Nazimuddin Samad, the young law student I just mentioned at the top of the show, was actually a supporter of the Awami League party. Anyway, upward and onward, on to the first story. This one, sure to ruffle some feathers. It's from Patheos, and it's entitled, Roughly two-thirds of British Muslims say they wouldn't inform authorities when learning someone has terrorist ties. And that's a heavily edited or revised title, perhaps a little less loaded than the original. You'll see what I mean when I read the following correction. And it's dated April 15th, 2016, uh, obviously, by Terry, Terry Firma. That can't be a real name. And it says, correction added, the original headline was roughly two-thirds of British Muslims say they wouldn't inform authorities of terrorist plot. With that, I inadvertently made, and this is the author speaking, made too broad a claim. The body copy was right all along. The headline overstated things. I've corrected it and apologized for the error. How is the integration of Muslims in the UK coming along? The polling firm ICM, hired by Channel 4 TV, quizzed 1,000 Muslims across the country during face-to-face -face interviews. The results are downright bleak. Okay, so this is me. 
Uh, so before I dig in and read about the findings of the poll, I'll just state the obvious and offer the disclaimer or caveat that obviously when a poll says something like two-thirds of a group feel a certain way about X, Y, or Z, or X, Y, or Z if you're in England, it's really <laughs> that is something you guys say, right? It's really two-thirds or whatever the fraction or percentage is we're dealing with uh, of those polled. In this case, 1,000 individuals. And it may or may not accurately reflect the sentiments of the larger population. And included in the article is a picture of what I guess is a crowd of British Muslims and one guy's holding a sign that says, Muhammad, father of good manners. I know there's a joke in there somewhere. I was going to make some kind of snarky remark regarding the, shall we say, nastier bits in the Quran. But anyway, moving on. And the um, article is citing uh, Haaretz. It says, only a third of British Muslims would inform the police if they thought that someone they knew is involved with terrorism, a poll shows. According to the survey conducted on behalf of the UK's Channel 4, some 4% of British Muslims said they sympathize with suicide bombers, and the same percentage said they sympathize with people who committed terrorist actions in general. According to the Times, the figures amount to 100,000 individuals who sympathize with terrorists. Well, I guess 4% isn't too bad, relatively speaking, but still 4% too many or too much, obviously. So, according to this poll, only a third of British Muslims would inform the authorities if they found out someone had ties to a terrorist group. And I wonder, you know, how many of those people are saying that because they'd be afraid of the repercussions of informing on, you know, someone who has ties to a brutal terrorist organization uh, and how many is simply because they agree with what the terrorists are trying to do. And of course, as I read it, it's saying 4% openly claim to sympathize with terrorists and suicide bombers, etc. But anyway, the article continues. How about Muslims' attitudes towards gay citizens? More than half of British Muslims think that homosexuality should be outlawed, according to the figures cited by The Guardian. 18% said they agreed, and 52% said they disagreed with the statement that homosexuality should be legal, compared to 5% among the general public who disagreed. Furthermore, 47% said they didn't think it is acceptable for gay people to be teachers, compared to 14% of the public at large. So that's pretty disturbing. More than half of those polled think homosexuality should be outlawed. And like I've said regarding Christian anti-gay rhetoric in the past, if two consenting adults of the same sex want to engage in a sexual or romantic relationship, who cares? Who's it hurting? Uh, what are you afraid of? If your kids see two men holding hands, it's going to magically turn them gay. I think for Christians, this anti-gay stuff can be traced back at least in part to the Old Testament, perhaps most notably uh, Leviticus. Although I think there's also some New Testament verses, a few references in the Pauline epistles, I think, that some interpret as condemning homosexuality. In the case of Islam, also in Abrahamic faith, obviously, I think there's references to the story of Lot that are interpreted as condemning homosexuality. 
But to make a long story short, who cares? Join the 21st century and don't hate on uh, people who are attracted to the same sex because of what's in your ancient books. I'll refrain from going off on a tangent about homosexuality and nature, big gay elephants, etc. I've done that in the past. Okay, but onward. Now it discusses attitudes towards women. Women's rights? Nothing uplifting there either, the article says. 39% said they believe wives should always obey their husbands, so 39% of Muslims polled, compared to 5% of the general public. 31% expressed support for British Muslim men having more than one wife, compared to 8% of the country as a whole. The polygamy part doesn't bother me. As long as all the people involved are consenting adults, I don't care how many people want to enter into a marriage uh, arrangement. The Old Testament's full of polygamy, by the way. Uh, but the fact that roughly 40% believe women should obey their husbands, that is disturbing to me. The idea that an adult human being of whatever gender should have to obey another person, it's an oppressive and barbaric um, notion, in my humble opinion. But it continues. In another disappointing finding, 26% of British Muslims think Jews are responsible for most of the world's wars compared to 6% of the country as a whole. I feel kind of relieved that it's only 26% among Muslims, as bad as that is. Not that I think all Muslims are bigoted against Jews, but there is some tension there. The ongoing Israeli-Palestinian conflict and uh, some rather unfortunate verses in the Quran, shall we say. There is this idea that back in the so-called golden age of Islam, Jews didn't fare too badly under Muslim rule. But some contend this is PC revisionism, and they would have been living in what's known as dimitude, this kind of uh, second-class citizen type of status. But I'm not certain. I'm not an Islamic scholar. But getting back to the poll, I'm almost more disturbed by the fact that 6% of the general public blame the Jews for the world's wars. I don't know if they're conspiracy theorists or anti-Semites. Uh, the two aren't necessarily mutually exclusive. But continues, the only result that might provide a ray of hope is that the poll's Muslim respondents express stronger positive feelings for Britain than the overall population does. 86% of British Muslims said they feel a strong sense of belonging in the country, compared to 83% of the general population. 88% of those surveyed said they believe Britain is a good place for Muslims to live, while 78% said they would like to integrate into British life on most matters. That's kind of worded rather oddly. They would like to integrate into British life on most matters. Uh, maybe not. It's worth pointing out that the poll has come under fire for being quote-unquote skewed. The Muslim Council of Britain, MCB, scoffed at it as quote-unquote made for TV and lacking in quote-unquote academic rigor. Well, if the poll is accurate, I think that is a ray of hope that 86% of Muslims polled feel a sense of belonging. But the article continues and... Um, there's a big quote here. 
We understand the poll draws answers from areas where Muslims formed more than 20% of the population, an MCB statement to HuffPost UK said. These happen to be some of the most deprived neighborhoods in the UK, with a disproportionately high number of people with a Pakistani or Bangladeshi ethnicity. Choosing specifically to poll in areas that are poor and more religiously conservative skews the results and makes it indicative of these areas and not of British Muslims nationally. ICM and Channel 4 don't think there's much to that argument. A spokesperson for the latter told the UK Huffington Post, There is no evidence to suggest that Muslims have radically different attitudes to the issues surveyed depending on whether they live in areas of more than or less than 20% Muslim population. If we assume that the poll numbers are broadly correct, and even if they somehow exaggerate the problem by an average of 10 or even 15 points, it's still a poor showing for Muslims, and it's hard to see integrative efforts succeeding in any major way in the foreseeable future. Although Channel 4 is generally viewed as politically progressive, and though the station has occasionally bent over backwards to accommodate Muslim sensibilities, its poll is likely to give a boost to hard right outfits like the UK Independence Party, the British National Party, the English Defence League, and Britain First. That might mean that strife and social unrest are likely to rise. If anyone sees a way out of this morass, let me know. And uh, that's the end of the article. And the next story up is pretty interesting. I bookmarked it as soon as I read it. And... Um, I apologize if some of these stories are a little old. This one's dated the, the 13th, and it's the 20th as I'm uh, recording this. But it's entitled, Congressman Wants a National Day of Reason as Atheist Alternative to Day of Prayer. Each year on the first Thursday of May, elected officials gather in Washington, D.C. and around the country for the National Day of Prayer. It's a day when public servants from the president on down encourage Americans of all faiths to pray and contemplate the role of the divine in their lives. But 20% of Americans identify as religiously unaffiliated or simply don't believe in God. I still That depresses me so much that um, we only make up 20% of the American population. We, meaning uh, non-believers... Um, atheist, etc. And you would think that religiously unaffiliated would be a much larger percentage or a much larger number because that could mean people who have spiritual beliefs but aren't affiliated with any particular um, organized religion. Um, but according to this article, both people who don't believe in God and, and, and people who may very well be spiritual but aren't of any particular religious affiliation together only make up 20%, which if this is accurate, that's pretty sad. But anyway, I'll continue. And many of them aren't comfortable with the idea of a government-sanctioned occasion that shuts them out entirely. And the funny thing is, I'm not bothered by the idea of being shut out of a quote-unquote government-sanctioned occasion. Um, I'm not much of a joiner anyway. But what bothers, what really bothers me about it, it, it once again, is the idea that, you know, if we only make up 20% of the population, then that means that the other 80% of the population believes in that which can't be proven, you know, believes in the superstitious, in supernatural faith claims, um, 
their worldview is founded on contradictory ancient texts. So, I mean, that, that to me, that's truly frightening. The only hope I have is that maybe there's a good deal of that slice of the pie, of that, you know, that 80% who simply pay lip service to religion, but maybe they don't actually believe, you know, maybe they go through the paces, you know, maybe they go to church a couple of times a year or go to keep their spouses happy or something, but they're not actually believers or they, they're kind of secular people that don't spend a lot of time um, thinking about religion other than when they're forced to go to church or whatever. And I imagine there's probably also a lot of people in the mix, at least I hope, who maybe identify with the religion they were brought up in. But if you sat them down over a couple of beers and really got down to it, they might admit that, you know, hey, man, you know, at the end of the day, no, we can't be, we don't know what happens after you die. Uh, yeah, there are some kind of contradictory things in in the Bible or, you know, I, I have my doubts or whatever. Uh, but hopefully it's not 80% are Bible-thumping, <laughs> you know, um, true believers or whatever. Uh, but you never know. I mean, there's some, if you've ever watched any of those kind of man-on-the-street type of polls where they ask people if they believe in angels or if they think the second coming is going to happen in their lifetime or whatever, it's kind of unsettling. But anyway, I'll, I'll continue this week, Representative Mike Honda, a Democrat from California, and Delegate Eleanor Holmes Norton, a Democrat who represents the District of Columbia in the U.S., House of Representatives, introduced a resolution to create a secular alternative to the National Day of Prayer. The one-time occasion known as the National Day of Reason would be observed on Thursday, May 5th the same day as this year's National Day of Prayer. According to the resolution's authors, the National Day of Reason would provide an opportunity for the religious and non-religious alike to come together and recognize the importance of reason in the betterment of humanity. And here's a quote. The application of reason has proven to improve the conditions in which people live, offer hope for human survival on earth, and cultivated intelligent, moral, and ethical behaviors and interactions among people, said Honda in a Tuesday press release. I encourage everyone to take this occasion to reflect upon the way that philosophical principles developed during the age of reason. And I'm glad he brought that up because I was going to bring up enlightenment values. Influenced our founding fathers, yep, I was going to bring that up too, as they formed our country and how the employment of reason, critical thought, the scientific method, and free inquiry can help resolve human problems and improve the welfare of humankind. So hair, hair, you know, I'm all for that. And I'm glad that they did kind of extend an olive branch and, and say that the event is for believers and non-believers alike. They just want people to, you know, focus on reason and how important it is. Okay, so lastly, uh, you know, I, I live here in New England. Um, I live in the greater Boston area. And according to Google Maps, <laughs> you know, and, and this is rush hour right now as I'm recording this, it would take me about 30 minutes during rush hour to uh, travel from where I am to Boston. So, you know, that's how close uh, I am. Maybe on a day when... um 
the traffic isn't really congested, maybe 15 minutes, 20 minutes. Uh, and the third anniversary of the Boston Marathon bombing just came and went. In fact, this past Monday was the Boston Marathon. And there were some moving stories out there of at least a couple of survivors of the marathon attack, both who had lost a leg, actually participating in this past Monday's marathon. And yeah, there just was something really moving about that. These people who were gravely wounded literally lost limbs in what was this horrendous terrorist attack, proving that they weren't going to let what happened to them destroy their lives or keep them down. And they're actually back and participating in the same event where three years ago they lost limbs and very easily could have been killed. And uh, maybe this is um, now the darker side of me, (laughs) you know, speaking. But in a way, too, like I like to think of it as a kind of an F you to the terrorists. I'm not saying these people think of it that way. <laughs> you know, I think these these are probably much more life-affirming people than I am. But yeah, I kind of like to think of it as an F you to the terrorists. Well, only one of the terrorists, one of the Tsarnaev brothers is, is actually still alive. Uh, and you ran over your brother, you dummy. <laughs> um which he did. I don't know if you guys remember that, and maybe that's my gallows humor where I can where I can actually laugh at this stuff. But you know, if I I don't believe in karma, at least not in the supernatural sense, I do kind of believe that there is kind of cause and effect, socially speaking, where if you treat people like crap, uh, eventually you're gonna burn your bridges and people are gonna start treating you like crap back. But I don't think there's any supernatural. Um, phenomenon at work cosmically that, you know, rewards or punishes us for our actions. But it almost makes me want to believe in karma. You know, they commit this horrible act and one of the brothers ends up dead after falling, you know, being shot, I think, first, then falling under the wheels of the getaway car, which his brother is driving, and the other one's rotting away in prison, as it should be. And maybe this sounds ghoulish to some of you guys out there. You know, I probably could summon my inner Gandhi um, and talk about how all life is precious, even terrorist lives, you know. Um, But I can't do it. I don't want to do it. These are people who strategically place pressure cooker bombs on the ground, you know, for maximum damage. So they would rip off limbs. Um, They probably wish that there was a higher death toll. I think... uh, off the top of my head, I think there were three immediate victims. And then uh, there was also, was it an MIT a police officer, a security guard who was also killed? I've mentioned this on the show before, but a young woman who died in the attack is actually from, um, actually from the same town where my brother lives. And it's funny, you know, there is this philosophical part of me, you know, part of me that likes to ponder the inherent value of life. And that might sound like a strange thing for an atheist to say, and I'm not going to get into it right now. I've spoken about it in the past. But I do kind of view life as having inherent value, despite the fact that uh, I I don't believe in a creator or an afterlife, or at least I strongly doubt those things. But I think, you know, just from a humanist 
point of view. And I guess, you know, I too can be a pretty life-affirming person. From an, a life-affirming humanist point of view, I do think that life holds value. And there's a part of me that when I hear about people who do heinous things, after the immediate anger and outrage I feel, I'll, I'll think about things like, what made this person this way? You know, how much of it was nature? How much of it was nurture? Was it bad genes, you know? Um, were they mistreated as a child? D did they just have the misfortune of life kind of get guiding them down a bad path or something like that? And then, of course, you know, Sam Harris talks a lot about free will, and that's something philosophers are still butting heads over. You have people like Daniel Dennett and Sam Harris uh two of the so-called um, four horsemen of new atheism who don't agree on the subject of free will. You know, are we just chemical machines and free will is just an illusion? Can we technically, when you really strip it all down, be blamed for anything we do? If you could keep rewinding, would we do the same thing over and over again? And we really don't have a choice. It just seems like we have a choice. I don't know. But to me, it's like, at some point, you have to stop gazing at your navel and say, when people do bad things, even though there probably were genetic and environmental causes that probably shaped them. Uh, for instance, many uh, serial killers had horrible childhoods. At some point, you have to hold people accountable. Maybe on some level, you can say, oh, that's too bad that, that that person turned out that way. You know, how's an innocent little baby eventually end up turning into such a monster? It's a shame. You know, you might say that. But I think at the end of the day, you have to hold people accountable for their actions. You know, these are people who cold-bloodedly planned out this nightmarish attack, placed pressure cooker bombs like I said, that were designed for maximum damage, designed to rip through limbs on the ground and nonchalantly waltzed off, you know? And then it should be mentioned that Tamerlan Zaniyev, the older brother, I forget the specifics of the case. I'm not going to look it up now, but posthumously, he was being looked at for a drug-related murder. So, I mean, these are not good guys. And maybe you could say that Joe Carr, however you pronounce his first name, might have had the misfortune of being the younger brother and was unduly influenced in that regard. Any of us who happen to be younger siblings, I'm the youngest of four, we know how, you know, when we were when we were kids, what's like to look up to your older siblings. But at the end of the day, still, he made ultimately he made the choice to go along with his brother to put the pressure cooker bomb on the ground. One of the fatalities was an eight-year-old boy. And I can remember when the attack happened. I think I had like a half day and I came home and took a nap and I woke up. And at first I wasn't sure if I was dreaming or not. I'm like, this can't be real. And I started looking on my iPad. And I remember almost right away after the initial attack, these really gruesome images were showing up on the web. And there were images of people on the ground, uh, people on the sidewalk, lying in pools of blood, their own feet or limbs beside them, you know, or it could have been someone else's foot or leg, who knows. People's legs just destroyed and crumpled under them. 
Um, of course, an iconic image of one of the survivors who had both his legs blown off and a good Samaritan is wheeling him in a wheelchair and you can see his leg bones, his shattered, jagged leg bones sticking out of his stumps. Um, the good Samaritan is literally holding up a long artery trying to pinch it off uh, so the guy doesn't die of blood loss as he's rushing the guy to safety or to get medical attention in a wheelchair. So this is why I have no sympathy for these guys. I mean, and I, I don't apologize for it. You know, maybe thinking about this stuff does kind of conjure up some of my darker emotions, you know, a sense of satisfaction in the misfortune of others. In this case, the fact that one terrorist is dead and the other one's rotting in prison. Um, but I'm not going to apologize for it. And even if I have a dark side, I don't give in to my dark side. I'm not the one going out and killing innocent people. I mean, if my dark side manifests itself as a desire to see killers punished, then hey, I guess I'm kind of proud of my dark side in that regard. But anyway, I'll call this episode a wrap. I've been kind of waxing philosophical for too long. You guys know the drill. Uh, you can like the show on Facebook. Please do. You can follow the show on Twitter. You can check out the YouTube channel. Maybe you're doing that now. If you want to check out the archives going all the way back to episode one, uh, not the Phantom Menace, um, the inaugural episode of The Week in Doubt, you can do that by going to podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com and searching for The Week in Doubt. If you want to support the show monetarily, you can use the PayPal widget at the bottom of the Podbean page. There's all that alliteration. Or you can uh, support the show through Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash theweekindoubt. And uh, you can help the show out for as little as 99 cents a month and quit anytime you want. All right. Thanks, guys. Until next time.